The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to follow as I read in God's Word this morning from Genesis 41. We've been studying the providence of God in the life of a man named Joseph, the son of Jacob. It's a long biography at the end of Genesis, and we won't cover every passage, although today I do have to read a significant portion of chapter 41. I'm going to jump over the second telling of Pharaoh's dream because it's the same words repeated but otherwise I'll read a, a good-sized chunk here of Genesis 41. Follow along. After two whole years, that is, time in prison, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. They led in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the banks of the Nile. The ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all his wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember now my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody of the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, and when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now let us move down to verse 25 because he's just telling his dream again. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. Those dreams are one. 
The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt. After them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt because the famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubting of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. I'm sorry, that's the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means. The thing is fixed by God, and Pharaoh, God, will shortly bring it to pass. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt, and let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers to the land and take one-fifth of the produce of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming. And store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in Egypt, so the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is no, none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. All my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one will lift up hand or foot in all the kingdom. And Pharaoh called Joseph by this name, Zaphonath-Paneah, and gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. And Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. He was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. He gathered up the food of those years which occurred in the land and put it in the cities. He put it in every city, the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, because it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On, who bore these sons. Joseph called the name of the first Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This is the word of God. Based on your experience in life, I wonder if you can construct to fit your own circumstances any kind of a scenario in which you would be launched out of your quiet 
daily life to suddenly attain a peak of fame, success, power, or wealth, the like of which that Joseph experienced. It's absolutely unthinkable. If one of us was appointed, let's say, Vice President of the United States tomorrow, that would not be as high an elevation as Joseph had, as he was answered to no one except Pharaoh all of a sudden out of his prison cell. I was trying to think of some of these kinds of transformations that might occur. Say there was a nine-year-old girl among us who had begun to study ice skating and figure skating who would, ten years hence from now, become the Olympic gold medalist in women's figure skating. We would say, wow, I hardly think that's possible, but it certainly is possible. It does happen to some people after all. Or what if maybe we had among our congregation a young attorney who's doing well in her career and who showed great ability and uh, she ran for Congress and got elected to Congress, served several seats there, got into the Senate, became the governor, and by age 60 was the nominee of her party for president of the United States. You say, impossible? I don't think so. It can happen to people and has happened similarly to others. Such possibilities might seem far-fetched of of our lives being changed so drastically. Most of us don't look for those kinds of changes. We, We want success. We want prosperity. We want to be recognized, perhaps, within the work that we do. But we don't even necessarily want the kind of fame that would have TV cameras waiting for us when we come out our front door in the morning or news reporters pestering us to write things about us that we didn't think were entirely true. The question I have is whether your faith in the living God would shine as brightly if you did get into such a high and exalted position of power or fame or success. Or would your underpinnings be like the roots of the lives of people featured in People magazine? I I was sentenced to a torture at the dentist office last week, and it wasn't the dentist. I love my dentist. It was sitting in his waiting room having nothing but People magazine to read for for 20 minutes. I said, my goodness, what empty, pathetic lives. The subjects of People magazine. The first time I'd seen the magazine in ages. Would you want that life? Would you have your spiritual roots if you had that life? Genesis 41 reports the true account of Joseph who had just such an amazing sweep-off-his-feet transformation. Having spent 13 years from age 17 to 30, a slave sold by his brothers, a man under the prison guardian, a man wronged by the wife of that guardian, a man forgotten about after promises were made by residents of the jail, a man whom it has been said, as we've studied him, God was with him, but we would say it doesn't look like it. If this is what it's like when God is with me, what's it like when he's absent, we could possibly ask. And then all of a sudden, the day came that Joseph was summoned, and they rushed him into some clean clothes and had him shave and I'm sure quickly propelled him down many corridors to reach the throne room of Pharaoh who had had a dream. 
you know what that experience is like. I actually had it last week. I had a dream. It wasn't a nightmare, but it was an unpleasant dream. And I, I woke up in kind of a cold sweat. And the dream was so unpleasant, I just wanted to get away from it. I wanted it to stop. I didn't want to lay down again and have it resume. So I thought, maybe I should get up and read for 20 minutes and just distract my mind because I don't want that dream to be back. Pharaoh had a dream that bothered him because he didn't know what it meant. And yet it was very vivid and and seemed like it was trying to convey some kind of a message. The interesting thing is that when Joseph came with his dream interpretation services that Pharaoh summoned, he not only correctly interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, but he propelled his own two dreams all the way back from chapter 37 into reality and fulfillment as well. It seems that Joseph must have walked into the presence of Pharaoh in a rather calm and self-possessed way. You know, how does a young Hebrew man from the sticks come and face the man behind the greatest world power of that whole part of the world? How could he be so calm? How could he speak so clearly and, and so composedly? I'm going to suggest to you it's only because Joseph had been spending much time in his life daily speaking to a far greater power than the puny overlord called Pharaoh. And because Joseph walked with his God and with the the power and presence of his God, speaking to Pharaoh was nothing beside that. Proverbs 21 verse 1 has the memorable telling of the fact that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wheresoever he might. We've seen one blow of cruel treatment after another to Joseph, and it seemed like he's never going to get out of his problem. I liken him to someone who seem, who's uh, like a novice chess player. I don't know if very many of you play chess. I'm a very novice. I like chess, but I'm, I'm too much of a novice. I always lose. Anybody who knows very much about it beats me. But uh, here's Joseph playing against, you know, there was a computer a number of years ago that beat the greatest Russian grandmaster at chess. The computer won. And, of course, the goal in chess is you you need to have a mind that's always four or five or ten moves ahead of the person you're playing. And the computer, of course, was able to do that, even with the grandmaster. Here's Joseph, you could say, playing chess with God. And Joseph knew basic moves, but God could always be moves out in front of him, rearranging the knights and the bishops and the pawns on the chessboard of Joseph's life so that the outcome would be God's, even if many of the moves along the way appeared to be coming from pure evil, not God. We find out that the merest breath of God was controlling the complex machine of circumstances that Joseph faced. Well, today I want to tell you three things that I think are carryover applications from this lengthy passage of Joseph's traveling from the pit, as it's been called several times, the pit that his brothers put him in as well as the pit of the jail. First of all, I want to tell you this, that on the ladder of spiritual success, you often must descend, descend, before you will ascend. Before Joseph could ascend from the pit, he needed to descend into it. We're taught here that 
no suffering or setback or insult or deprivation that a man or woman of God might endure is just a happenstance accident. It may not originate with God. It may be purely evil, and evil does not come from God. And yet God, the grand chess master, is able to take every evil move and turn its ultimate result out for good. We've said from message one on in this series that God worked for good in the whole of Joseph's life. All things, Romans says, work for good to them who love God and are his called ones according to his purpose. And that God was working for Joseph's good here to be a physical savior to starving people, not just in Egypt and Canaan, but all the adjacent lands. Tens of thousands of people ended up looking to Egypt for this food. And Joseph was ready with a plan that no one else would have put in place or could. But God had to take him down deep into the pit and let him be hammered on a little bit on the anvil of circumstances and providence before he was ready to take this responsibility. I had another illustration in mind when I came here this morning, but having heard a news bulletin on TV last night, and I'm sure many of you did last night or this morning, and you know that Senator John McCain has died. And I couldn't help but think about John McCain as a good illustration of God taking you down in order to raise you up for a significant usefulness. I won't pause over his story very long, but he's a man who deserves honor. I don't care what your political party or your political views are. Do you realize here's a man now, age 81, has died, who comes from just a little ahead of my generation, but served in my generation's war in Vietnam. Young John McCain was a pilot and a hotshot. I understand he thought he was pretty good stuff and probably took unnecessary risks as a pilot. He admitted that later on, and his plane was shot down in North Vietnam. Maybe you've read about him, maybe you haven't, what he went, what he went through. People pulled him out of a lake or a rice paddy. I'm not sure which it was, but he would have drowned if they hadn't pulled him out. But in pulling him out, they also used a rifle butt to smash his shoulder, a bayonet to stab him in the thigh, another rifle butt on his knee, which almost caused his leg to be amputated later. And then they put him in Hanoi Hilton. Those of you who are old enough know that's not a Hilton with sleep-easy foam mattresses. It was a torture chamber where John McCain and other brave Americans were kept for five and a half years. Five and a half years. Deprived of contact with his family, constantly beaten on, tortured to try, when they found out he was an admiral's son, they especially tried to get him to confess to things. And this man had to go really far down before he could come back up, come home, heal, run for political office, be a leader in our nation, and a man of principle who deserves honor from us as a patriot. Sometimes you have to go all the way down, as deep as you can go, before God has you ready to rise up and come fully into a place of usefulness in your life. God's school of preparation for spiritual leadership is often unglamorous service. It's 
a service that cuts you off maybe from people you want to be in touch with or things you want to do. It goes along with the saying that Jesus brought forth much later in years in biblical revelation when Jesus said, he that loses his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall find it. Now, John McCain wasn't specifically in Christian service, I understand that. But in effect, he had to lose his life and let it go before he found it back again, restored to him. And so with Joseph. Joseph was a model of this, a a type of this. We call Old Testament things that picture or depict New Testament things. He was a type of Christ. And we think of how Christ is portrayed in this same way in a poignant, wonderful passage of the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2. When Paul is there depicting, he introduces the thought with Philippians 2.3 saying to Christians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. I think that's what was going on in Joseph. He was learning to count other people as being more significant than himself. And when you think about it, that is a tremendous lesson. Tremendous. It is so hard to regard any other person as being greater than yourself because we're born incredibly selfish. And we all think of ourselves as being the best person to be served. But Paul said, think of others as better than yourself. And then he went right into that epic passage in Philippians 2, and he said, like Jesus, who being in the form of God did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it was as a consequence of that, Paul concluded, that lowly service that literally valued other people more than himself, more than God in flesh, that Paul said, God has highly exalted him, Christ, and given him a name that is above every name. There's the principle. On the ladder of spiritual success, you may have to follow the pattern, not of John McCain, but of Jesus Christ. The pattern to go down and down until you learn that serving yourself and exalting yourself and seeking pleasures and good things for yourself is not what you're put here for. You're put here to serve. And sometimes when you serve, you get beat up by it. Sometimes you do things that you don't like at all. But God is preparing you. The way up is first to go down. Just as John McCain self-testified that he was a hotshot pilot and a rather cocky young man as a military pilot, I think there was some of that cockiness in Joseph. The text of Genesis doesn't make it out too much, but the fact that he seemed to like parading around in his multicolored coat and vaunting himself over his brothers tells us there was a little bit of cockiness here. And God had to take that out of the man to teach him the compassion, the wisdom, the sensitivity that would be literally physical Salvation, not spiritual salvation, but physical salvation for thousands of people as he put into practice this scheme with the grain of Egypt. 
captive for 13 years in a pit of suffering and service. There, and no other place, God forged a man who was prepared to come to the pinnacle and act wisely and use power correctly when he was on the pinnacle. If you think a leader to be followed is a man who's lived all his life in privilege and thinks the way you lead is to bully people, check out Joseph. Check out John McCain. Check out a very different kind of leader. Jesus asked the question in Luke 22 when he said, Who is greater among you, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? And Jesus added there, I am among you. I, the Son of God, am among you as one who serves. On the ladder of spiritual success, you often must descend before you will ascend. Secondly, shorter point, Genesis 41 teaches us that the Spirit of God actually endows believers with undeniable authority visible to others. The secret of having that inward authority that Joseph had as he spoke so ably before the great Lord on the throne of Egypt was the presence of God, no question about it. It wasn't that he was especially smart or he had gone to an Ivy League college. or It was God present with him. And the amazing thing is that here we're told Pharaoh, a man who had been trained to think from his birth that he was a god, small g, which he wasn't, recognized the presence of the real and true God in Joseph. Look what he said. It's an amazing statement. Can we find another man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? By the way, interesting little detail, 41 chapters into Genesis, this is the first statement of the three words, Spirit of God. And it's a pagan man without biblical theology who recognized the Spirit of God. And he said, okay, Joseph, I want you to work your magic. I hear you're quite a, quite a dream interpreter, and you can do it, so whip up an answer for me. And, and, you know, well, what would you want to do? Would you want to please Pharaoh? You certainly wouldn't want to displease him. We saw what he did to the baker. He got hung for his trouble. So you're going to say, oh, sure, Pharaoh, I can do it. I'll give you a good... In- what did Joseph say? I cannot do it. But God can do it. Isn't that interesting? He made it very clear that whatever he would speak would not be out of his creativity or his high-minded creative thinking. It would be from the voice and the mind of God. And as Pharaoh heard him spin out the tale and spin out the plan for how the grain would be saved and everything else, he turned to his advisors and he said, Look at this guy. Is there anybody like this guy around? Can we find a man, the likeness of him with whom is the presence of God? Pharaoh, a man who had no liking for or seeking after the God of Israel, was stunned. And he, a very worldly man, bowed and gave over all this authority and said, you do it. You're the best man. I like 
I like a couple things just quickly about details of what was said there. When, when Pharaoh said to Joseph, you take the number two chariot. Does, doesn't that fit in well today? You know, he didn't get Air Force One. He got Air Force Two. And he was allowed to fly that. And isn't it interesting that it was said of him, everyone would say before, as you go through the land, everybody would say, bow down, bow down. Well, what was the dream of Joseph, about Joseph, that was supposed to be fulfilled? Everyone will bow down before me. That's the dream that got him in trouble in the beginning. And here's his dream being fulfilled. As people recognized the quiet, calm authority of the presence of God upon a human being. You know, we could go off on a long tangent here about the Holy Spirit and his work in Christian lives. Do not say, well, I don't have the Holy Spirit. That's for special Christians. If you're saying, I do not have the Holy Spirit, you're saying, I am not a Christian. Romans 8 makes that very clear. You have had no ability to say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Check it out, Romans 8, 9. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God at work in you, changing you, influencing you, shaping you. Attitudes are changing. Ways of speaking, ways of behaving are changing. And guess what? Other people are noticing. Maybe they're even noticing more than you are noticing a change in yourself. If you have this quiet authority of the Spirit of God, it might work for you similar to Joseph and you'll get promoted at work. But don't go there and say, I promised it, because depending on your people at your work, you might just as well get fired too, depending on what they think of the authority of God exhibited in your life. Well, thirdly, another thing that's a detail of this text, but it's it's significant, and the reason I read such a long passage was to get all the way to verse 52. I want you to notice in 51 and 52 a small detail with large importance here that also can impinge on us. That in order to move forward, a godly leader needs grace to forget and forgive. What does that mean? We learn here that they gave Joseph an Egyptian wife, Asenath, and she actually was as far from being an Israelite believer as she could be as she was the daughter of an Egyptian priestess. But she gave him two sons, and the sons are noted here with their names, Manasseh and Ephraim. And this information is not just here to fill in details in the family scrapbook of Joseph. This is an important set of details because although he was being inculturated like an Egyptian and given, he was called Zaphonath Panea, interpreter of dreams in Egyptian. And he was given an Egyptian chariot and Egyptian clothes and everything else. But there was one part of Joseph that he would not allow to be Egyptian. The names of his sons are in Hebrew. And Joseph named his sons according to the future posterity that he knew had been promised by the covenant God to the heirs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Manasseh and Ephraim. He was letting his sons stand in the line of heritage of God's work that he knew was yet to come somehow, that he could see it. You'll you'll hear later on, he tells his sons, Don't let them bury me. Don't leave me in the ground in Egypt. Take me up to the land that God has promised our people. Joseph could have turned and looked at what had been done to him, the people who had turned against him, who had murderously 
cruelly used him. And he now had all the authority he needed to get even with everybody who had harmed him, didn't he? He could have taken chariot number two and filled it with assassins and sent them saying, go, go up to the land of Canaan, find the house of my father Jacob, find my ten brothers who sold me into slavery and kill them. And as they're dying, tell them, this is from Joseph. Or he could have sent a raiding party down to Potiphar's house and say, get that woman in there who betrayed me and lied about me and put her in Potiphar's prison. And he didn't do either of those things, did he? In fact, what he did was name his son, I have forgotten. I have determined to forget all the cruelty, all the lies, all the deceit, all that was done against me. God has forgiven me. God has wiped my slate clean. How could I not do the godlike thing and say, I have forgotten all this terrible cruelty against me that I could so readily and easily remember. Joseph wasn't saying it was easy to do that. I'm sure it took a great determination. It probably took prayer as he said, Lord, give me the power to forget that which I so bitterly remember. But he said, it's time to forget all the rough stuff, all the harmful stuff. It's time to go forward into this task God has for me. It makes you think so well of Paul writing in Philippians chapter 3 when he said the goal of his apostleship was forgetting the things that are be- what was behind for Paul, killing Christians. Forgetting the things that are behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize to which God has called me heavenward. That was Paul, Philippians 3.14. Setting our wounded pride aside from whatever has harmed us, whatever difficulty, unfairness, injustice, cruelty has come to us somehow along the way, we too need to claim the name Manasseh and say, I choose before God to forget and forgive past wrongs against me, for I have been forgiven so much. And so for today, I close with this 100% God-focused, God-enabled, God-empowered, God-saturated man, Joseph. He seems a little bit too perfect to be true. And yet the principles of what he did are principles that we can follow. God was working all things for good, even the evil things. And once you know that, you can say, ultimately, nothing evil that comes against me can destroy me, even if it took my life. It can't destroy me. The worst that could happen is I'd be in the the living presence of God and see him face to face. What freedom and joy we miss when we cannot leave behind us many wrongs from the past, many harmful things, many lies perhaps against us, when God has wiped away all that stuff in the blood of Christ. If you know Christ today as Lord, I pray you do. I hope you'll hear something from the Apostle Peter. Yes, he's hundreds of years later, but hear Peter interpreting this whole thing in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. That's his plan, and he'll do it for his child. 
Let's pray together. Father, what a life we have as we watch Joseph. Not a perfect man, but a man who lived with his gaze on you and his trust in you in the midst of things that might have driven some of us mad. I pray, O oh God, that if there are folks among us who are dwelling in bitterness over wrongs done to them, and they say, well, this makes no sense. God couldn't have any part in this. I don't know why this has happened. And one day, if I ever have the ability, I'm going to get those people who did this to me. Would you turn that person around? Show them yourself as the grand chess master, moving every piece to work our blessing, to work good for us, we who are yours in Jesus just as you did for him so wonderfully. We thank you in his name. Amen.